When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta, and this is our show for the week of Shimmer's Day, August 28th, 2023. On the show today, news, listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim Hill and Jim Scholl tell us about the development of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge on the anniversary of its Walt Disney World opening in 2019. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that he's only your fiancé if he's from the fiancé region of France. Otherwise, he's just your sparkling boyfriend. A Brosecco, if you will. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Oh, Brosecco. I love <laughs> that <you>. term. <laughs> By the way, uh, September 1st, Nancy and I will be celebrating our 26th anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah. Just prior to this, this podcast, I went to her and I asked, am I still your sparkling boyfriend? And, and her response was, hang on. I haven't heard back from the courthouse yet about the restraining order. Not looking good, Len. <laughs> exactly. Not looking good. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for you, though, Jim. Thank you. Also, would like to introduce a special guest for the show today. It's the former executive creative director of Walt Disney Imagineering, Mr. Jim Scholl. Jim, how's it going? Oh, it's going great, Len. Thanks for having me back on the show. I, I can't wait to get started this time. Uh, Jim Scholl, did you make it through the combination hurricane and earthquake? The uh, the hurricane. Okay. No, we're fine. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of water around the house. The sandbags held up. We're just waiting now for the locust and the uh, the plague <laughs> yeah, exactly. that comes behind it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Okay. Yeah. Just a dab of lamb's butter on the front door. You'll be fine. Yeah. And right. I think that's not till like mid-September, Jim. So you got plenty of time there. Yeah. There we go. But I will point out the buzzards are circling as we speak. So we probably better step along. along. You know, it's funny because I have, I have friends who live in Palm Springs. And they mm-hmm. were like, do you know where we can get a golden statue of Ball? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> funny you mentioned that. No, I don't. But yeah, anyway, good luck. <laughs> There's only Zool. All right. There we go. There we go. <laughs> anyway, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, E. Conrad 99, Ann Gonter, Tom Jan, and Linda Drown. And longtime subscribers, Andrew Liker, Melissa Miss 320, Aaron Riftkind. Hey, Aaron. And Jess Friends. Jim and Jim. These are the Disney cast members designing a Sasquatch meet-and-greet for the Redwood Creek area of Disney California Adventure. They say the project has been great because the Sasquatch always share the best trail mixes. The only issue they're having is the requirement that these character greetings have to happen at completely unexpected times, last no more than 10 seconds, and include a blurry on-ride photo in MDE. True story. (laughs) Wow. Sounds like my prom date. (laughs) Exactly. You had a date? Oh, really? Yeah, exactly. You went to prom? No, oh, no, with the prom? You guys went to prom? All right. All right, okay. all right. All right, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is sponsored by Touring Plans Travel Agency. Yes, we have a travel agency too, and we can help book your next trip. Plus, it comes with a free Touring Plans subscription. Check us out at touringplans.com slash dish. All right, folks, uh, cast member previews of Journey of Water start September 1st. So I'd expect AP previews around the middle or third week of September. Disney still says a late 2023 opening for this thing, which would mean quite a distance from, you know, later this week, if it was true. Mm. Jim Schull, what's, uh, what's your opinion on a, on a possible opening date for this, given that uh, previews start September 1? Well, we know what we know, and that is that they have started to allow cast members in right. and a few selected guests. So What's interesting about it, Len, is except for I only read one review mm-hmm. from anyone who's actually been behind the wall yeah. with their opinions of it. So um, I don't know if that bids good things or bad. We shall see. I'm trying not to uh, read any reviews. I'm trying to go into it spoiler free. I've got a review. Uh, I've got a, a slot next week to do it. But the interesting thing to me, and Jamil, I want to hear your opinion on this, mm-hmm. is that it's a walkthrough attraction, but it's going to have a queue. And I don't know of any walking paths from one end of a theme park to another where to get through that walking path, you have a queue. 
The other thing to understand, and and this is kind of the frustration point because it's been going on for so long at this point, but the reimagining of future world, breaking it down into world nature, world discovery, world celebration, is still ongoing. And at some point in the future, when you know the new performance space is open and the new show kitchens and that sort of thing, I honestly believe, even with the Moana limited series that's coming to Disney+, Plus, that there won't necessarily be a need for a queue. But for right now, in the middle of a construction site, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll need a queue. Okay, that's fair. So you think it's a temporary thing? I hope. I hope. Because based on what we saw, in fact, Mr. Schull and I got to tour the Imagineering Pavilion at the D23 Expo, uh, in fact, I think it was a year ago this month. And uh, they actually had some of the Journey of Water Moana stuff up there. And mm -hmm. it looks charming. But at the same time, I think people have to have realistic expectations. This is, it's a C, a D? Well, yeah, I'm not even sure if you can say C's, D's, mm -hmm. or E's anymore because, mm -hmm. you know, we don't do ticket books. Yeah. But to your point, I think the park will have to have and maintain a with a marquee because let's face it we all live in the social media world now so there's going to be that big push to be the very first to document everything about moana journey of water sure but you know the question i really have since it involves water is this a two towel or a three towel <laughs> ride <laughs> good, good point yeah am i going to get misted or soaked on this yeah, oh my God. yeah exactly oh my God. you know the, my, here's my thing because i would have different evaluation criteria for this thing if it's a walkthrough attraction versus if it has a queue. Because as soon as you start telling people to stand in line, the expectations go up considerably. And, and also I'll, I'll point out, I mean, again, I haven't been, you know, on site. I look a lot at uh, bio-reconstructs, mm -hmm. aerial photos, and they mm -hmm. seem to suggest there's not a direct pass through the attraction. Good. It has a formal entrance in and an entrance exit out, okay. which means the park is going to be counting guests going through as capacity. But it's not a bypass. You can't just simply say, oh, I'm in seas with Nemo and friends, and I really want to get over to the test track, so I'll just cut through Moana Journey of Water. Oh, that's a good point. So, um, so if there's a separate entrance and exit, and you can't go in the exit, then it's an attraction. Right. It's, it's counted mm, as capacity. Interesting. Okay. Well, that could change, that could change the evaluation. We'll see. Okay. Also, folks, Disney's just announced its schedule for Destination D23 in Orlando, running Friday, September 8th through Sunday, September 10th. Friday's kind of the check-in and registration day. Saturday's highlight is a presentation by Parks President Josh Tomorrow, titled A Celebration of Disney Parks Experiences and Products Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Guys, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but my guess is that this is going to focus a lot on the yesterday and today parts, and the tomorrow stuff won't be anything major beyond projects we already know that are in the works. And my, I think that for a couple of reasons. One is Disney probably doesn't want to announce anything major for Walt Disney World while its lawsuits with the state are ongoing because it loses a lot of leverage. Mm -hmm. If it says, you know, yeah, we're fighting you, but we're still going to invest $5 billion or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, in the next five years. Also, I would say that it's reasonable to infer that there are already preliminary development ideas. Like, think of them as five-year plans for things like Galaxy's Edge addition to like a sit-down restaurant or live entertainment. There's talk about, you know, Animal Kingdom development of Moana and Zootopia ideas. Um, but beyond that, guys, what do you think uh, uh, in terms of what might happen during this talk? Jim Schull, I'll start with you. Well, again, I'm going to turn to Magic 8-Ball, and it says basically very cloudy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, I, you know, you're not wrong that if I were going to go negotiate with the governor of Florida, I probably wouldn't want to, you know, walk into the room and say, oh, by the way, please be nice to me, but here's my $5 billion worth of cash that I'm going to be investing in your state. You right. lose leverage. The second note I'll make is, you know, again, having three decades plus of experience, Working in Florida is a very different place than anywhere else because you have so much, so many parks, hotels, and other things for people to do. It takes time, and there are a lot of moving parts before you get the green light to do anything. And it is worth noting that the last quarterly earnings call, Disney did release a sort of a timeline for all of the projects it's had in the works. And the very last thing, went live in 2026, which, remember, Mr. Iger just extended his own deal 
to December of 2026. So that's another consideration here, you know, to the effect of what can a Bob Iger put in motion when the time schedule for stuff that gets built at the park, even if you turn key today, three years, four years? Uh, five. Well, there it we can go. Be five, for a, five for a large project. But also remember this, there's always a need for new capacity, new rides, shows, and attractions. Because yes. let's face it, if you're a family living in, oh, I don't know, Texas, and you're looking for some place to go on your family vacation, well, just up the street from Disney World is going to be that bright, new, shiny park. Yeah. yeah. You know, that it's going to be opening, what is it, around 2025, they're saying yeah. now, Jim? And summer 2025 is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big, that's a big uh, piece of competition. I mean, you may take your family, make your plans to go there instead of coming back to Disney World. So it may force the Florida park's hand. We'll see. Like I said, I don't expect anything uh, new to come out of uh, this particular announcement. My guess is Josh is just going to go over the same things that uh, that were talked about in the earnings call that uh, Jim that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next little bit of news. Disney announced a lengthy refurbishment for the Yacht and Beach Club's Stormalong Bay. And the interesting thing about this announcement is that Disney said it'll take place from January to March of 2025. And that tells you how popular the pool is at this resort because Disney felt the need to give people a 16-month heads up on the refurbishment. And to Disney's credit, it's scheduling the first half of that refurb during the coldest months of the year, so January, February, March, to further minimize the number of guests that are affected. Also, Disney points out that the Admiral Dune Cove and Tidal Pool, uh, Quiet Pools, will still be open. So, yeah, I mean, but guys, I mean, a 16-month lead on a pool a pool refurbishment <laughs> tells you how important Stormalong Bay is. The weird thing about Stormalong Bay, it's that combination of the chlorinated water and the sandy bottom. I don't oh. uh, I don't understand why that particular pool is so much fun, so much more relaxing. You know, mm-hmm. It's just oh. that that weird mix of elements. So there's a lot of people who probably book trips to this hotel just because it has Stormalong Bay and the fact that, okay, this is not going to be available for six months. You know, uh, Heads know up. this up front. Yeah. yeah. Well, many times I'd pull my, my white mm-hmm. thinny, thin body out mm-hmm. to the, the <laughs> and be in the lazy river just to get into the, uh, the whirlpool that they have or go down the slide which was concealed inside the mast of a large ship. So it's yeah. a phenomenally good, mm-hmm. you know, pool on the property. But again, you know, even though the date for closure sounds like it's 100 years from now, mm-hmm. reality is, again, that family in Dallas mm-hmm. who's planning their vacation yeah. time, vacation they're starting it budget, now. Yeah. yeah, they're starting it now. Yeah, it's true. I, I mean, I love the pool. It's the highest rated pool in Walt Disney World. Is it really? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, really? It, it's... Cool. It sort of set the standard for lazy river type pools that you see mm-hmm. at the resorts in Bonnet Creek or Cabana Bay at Universal. I mean, Yacht and Beach, Stormalong Bay was the first one to do that and everything else is sort of imitating it. So hmm. I get it. It, mm. yeah, it's a, it's a very important pool when it comes to mm-hmm. Orlando theme park resorts. Okay. Uh, speaking of openings, Disney says that Tiana's Place, the new restaurant in Disneyland, that's taking the place of the French Market Restaurant will be open around the middle of next week on September 7th. It also means the Mint Julep Bar will also reopen. Jim Schull, are you planning to uh, check this out? Ooh, yeah, I know. <laughs> if you can't, Jim, hmm. if you're trying to call me anytime next week, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I may not be available. You know, it's, Jim Schull's like, it's, no, I love Disneyland. Disneyland's the best. <laughs> I heard that they have rides here, but let me, let me walk over and, and, Sample of the mini bar again. Exactly. You know, see how many mints there are in my jewel. Up it's here quality control. It is. It is. Uh, you know, I do. I, I do the best I can. You know, <laughs> I, I put out for everyone. <laughs> All right. The time for listener questions. Uh, here's one from Wesley, who says, uh, "I just got off of the Star Cruiser for the final time. I introduced myself to the captain as Ben Lonely. She immediately asked if I was related to Hank." <laughs> <laughs> and then before no, I could even uh, ask, she apologized for not being able to show space robots in outer space on the ship, saying that the ongoing strikes taking place prevented her from showing it, but they hope to add the movie soon. And she wanted me to say hello to Len uh, and give you her best. And there, and, and uh, Wesley included a photo of him with uh, the captain. And it's uh, the same captain that we've had both times we've been on. You know, 
there have been moments in this, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, two decades or whatever. Yep. There have been moments that have been personal highlights. But mm-hmm. I got to say, being part of the Star Wars canon. No, that's it exactly. Is, is kind of up there, you know? <laughs> I love that the immediate reaction. Oh, you know, just, and, and, and what are the poets? Space robots in space that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. That's so cool. That is so cool. It's kind of fantastic. So congratulations mm-hmm. to everybody on the mm-hmm. uh on the Star Cruiser, the the entire cast and crew, you guys have done a phenomenal job yeah, as we yeah. uh, enter the last month of it. And you know, yeah. it didn't end the way that we we all thought it would. But no, uh, no. this not because of you guys and your lack of effort. Because no, you guys no, did a great not job. At no, so. not at all. Super yeah. job, guys. No. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. All right, a trip planning question from Greg. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, "I've got a question about Genie Plus for an upcoming trip to Walt Disney World the first week of December, which is the second through the ninth. There are seven in my family: my wife and five kids." Well, ages 10, 8, 6, 5, and 5, and my mother-in-law will be coming with us too. I question... Okay, so first thing is, uh, Greg didn't say it was a vacation. He said it was a trip. So fair. Okay. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, Greg says, uh, I'm trying to figure out if it's worth buying Genie Plus with this group of kids. Any purchase we make is multiplied by 8, so $25 per person per day really adds up. Plus, we'll probably take breaks midday. On the other hand, skipping lines with five kids is magical. Do you have any thoughts on whether Genie Plus is worth it or if we can get by with a sound touring plan? So we're talking about at least $200 a day yeah. in Genie Plus. So for the first week, that's the let's say that the ninth and the second are travel days. That's third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. You're looking at six days. That's at least $1,200 in Genie Plus. All right. So my first question to Greg, which he didn't mention, but I'll give mm-hmm. an update if he does it, is... Are you going to take advantage of early theme park entry? Because if you are, if you're staying at a Disney resort and you're going to do early theme park entry and you're committed to being at the front of that line, then that reduces considerably the need for Genie Plus. And here's how I know this. I think we've talked about this a little bit on the show, Jim Hale, but Jim Schull, mm-hmm. you haven't heard this. So our summer project was to work with uh, three math PhDs at Furman University, plus a bunch of students, on testing exactly this idea. So one of the questions that we had was, if you're the first person in the rope drop line for Seven Dwarves Mine Train, what's the optimal touring plan strategy for you for the first six hours the park is open? And if you're in the middle of that group, does your strategy change? Or if you're at the end, do you have to do something completely different? So just to make it realistic, I'll give you these numbers, which we counted in the Magic Kingdom. So um, on a crowd level six day back in May, we counted a thousand people in line, in the rope drop line for Seven Doors Mine Train. And one of the things that we noticed was it took almost 20 minutes for that thousand people, once the rope dropped, to form a line and get into line at Seven Doors Mine Train. It didn't take them 20 minutes to get on the ride. It took the last person, the thousandth person in that line, almost 20 minutes to form a line and then make it to the very entrance, the first stanchion of the small world queue, which means they got off the ride sometime after early theme park entry had ended, which means they got on zero rides during early theme park entry. So the obvious question was, should you have done something else? And if so... How far back in that initial group do you need to be before your touring plan changes? You guys with me on this? Yeah. Oh, this is a math problem. It's a math problem, exactly. So we did a couple of things. Um, (laughs) One of the things that the Furman team came up with was um, simulations that uh, tell you how long you expect to wait at all of the open attractions Mm -hmm. for early theme park entry. And the way that we got that was by positioning Chrissy and a bunch of you know, researchers at the entrance to each ride every day and just counted how many people got in line. Like from 8.30 to 8.31, we counted 38 people, you know, getting in the standby line. And then, you know, from 8, you know, 8.31 to 8.32, you know, 47 people or whatever. And the interesting thing that Furman came up with was of those thousand people, you're probably okay with your initial strategy if you're in the first block of 400 but the 400th person in line or the 401st person in line, once they get on Seven Doors Mine Train, should probably do something else other than what the, the initial group did because they're going to take so long to get through the ride that lines have built up at the other attractions so much that they need a different strategy. And if you're the 1,000th person in line, maybe Seven Dwarves isn't the best attraction for you. 
The thing we're trying to figure out now is how often does Seven Dwarfs not open for early theme park entry? And does, can we factor that into the decision that you need to make? So we'll know a little bit more about that. But once Greg uh, gets back to us with a resort and the early theme park entry thing, we'll, uh, we'll tell you more. But anyway, that's basically how we spent our summer vacation. <laughs> that's fascinating. But I would also, you know, if I were in that position walking up to Seven Dwarfs, one thing I might ask would be of the operator is, are you running the full complement of trains yeah. when you open? Mm-hmm. Because then you have more of a sense of what your throughput, how long, because the trains only take not less than a certain amount of time to get through a cycle. Yeah. I mean, in other words, from the station on the ride back to the station, and that's X number of people. And then you can calculate the number of people in line to right. calculate essentially how long it's going to take. So we're also, uh, we also have somebody counting the dispatch time. Uh, as well, which is how oh, we did the simulation. So, okay. yeah, yeah. So I think the uh, the median time is somewhere between forty five and fifty seconds per dispatch. In regard to like small world, I mean, I mean, so somebody's literally standing outside the entrance. I mean, yeah. Isn't there also a point inside of the Pinocchio house, the the village house, where you can actually look down on the boats being dispatched yes. from there? Yeah, there is. The, the mm-hmm. windows are still there, and you can still do it. Yeah, it's um. It's it's better if you can stand in front of the entrance because it also tells you once they're in the line they mm-hmm. tend to clump up a little bit more and if you're talking about the intra arrival time the number of seconds between guests it's easier to get it at the entrance interesting because um, oh, if, okay. if people stop to like take pictures on that you know the once, once oh, you God, get in there's yeah. a little bridge where yeah. you yeah so if yeah, people stop to do down. that it kind of screws that up yeah so okay all right uh, last question is from Brent in Australia mm-hmm. he says uh, dear Jim and Len. Do you have any idea why Imagineering or Disney hasn't thought of dropping Mystic Manor or a version of it into Animal Kingdom? From what I hear, it's one of the best rides Imagineering has ever produced. Any thoughts as it seems like it would be a home run for Disney with Epic Universe not far off? All right, so Jim Schull, I want to hear your answer to this as well because I don't know what Imagineering's policy is on having two similar rides in different parks at the same resort. So setting aside simple rides like Dumbo and Triceratops Spin and 3D movies, I can really only think of a handful of rides and ride systems that are substantially the same across parks. And that would be like Body Wars at Epcot and Star Tours at the studios, which kind of ran concurrently from like 1989 to 2010. There is that. But, you know, but let me, but I've got to share a story since you brought up the Body Wars. I was with a family. They didn't know I was with an imaginary, but we were all riding Body Wars. They got off and the first thing the preteen son said is, mm-hmm. oh, this is just a r- ripoff. Of starters. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, you know, my point being that, yeah, typically Disney generally tries not to do mm-hmm. like or identical rides yeah. just for because of that, uh, that answer. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, how many parks have a Thunder Mountain? How many parks have a, well, had a Splash Mountain? Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, if something's really popular, it usually presses the needle that it will be duplicated. Hmm. Generally, if something appears in a, in a park that's new and is exciting and a home run, right. if it's not, if they're not making a second version of that within five years of the first one opening, the odds of there being a second one start to drop appreciably. How long of an exclusive agreement would there be w- uh, with a park and a new ride like Mystic Manor? Is it like three years, five years? Well, I think it depends. I mean, in the case of Hong Kong Disneyland, Disney doesn't own that r- park outright. They have a partner, Ledge, well, Ledgeco, which is an arm of the Hong Kong government. And so whatever their master agreement would be, would stipulate how long Hong Kong Disneyland would have exclusive rights to a new ride. And that would vary park by park. It is a shame because, you know, I mean, I think we've all seen, well, I think Mr. Schultz actually written Mystic mm-hmm. Manor, but, you know, the rest of us have seen the videos and it's just, it's charming sort of yeah. very different take on, on a haunted mansion that is one of those things that could fit in a, a castle park, it could fit Animal Kingdom, hell, it could, you oh, know, yeah. you could find a place in the studios for it. Just listening to the Danny Elfman score is worth the price of building it. Oh, oh no, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and since it's sort of like animal based, I could I could definitely see like a Zootopia overlay, you know, on that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I do love Albert the monkey, so yeah. I'm on board exactly. with that. There we go. Also, uh, so one other one other line that I had written for this that I didn't get a chance to use, so I will use it now. Is mm-hmm. you could argue that Navi River Journey is either it's a small Pandora <laughs> or the Grand Fiesta <laughs> Tour. 
And I actually yeah. translated the words Grand Fiesta Tour in mm. Navi, which mm. is Lanal Fixtosa Tesop. <laughs> you know, trying to wow. trying to push the uh, the oh. frontiers of podcast journalism here, guys. Okay. <laughs> Oh, uh, you, you have entirely so much time. On <laughs> too your much hands, time. Lynn. Too much time. This was. This is what happens when I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to eat lunch and try and fill in the rest of the show notes. Anyway, we're going to take a quick commercial break, folks. When we come back, Jim and Jim tell us about the design trade-offs that happened during the development of Star Wars: Galaxy's Edge, which opened at Walt Disney World this week back in 2019. We'll be right back. This is Monday, August 28th, which means that four years ago today, the Florida version of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge was formally dedicated by then chairman of the Disney Parks, Bob Chapek. Whatever happened to that guy? No, I know. <laughs> I, the thing I remember about this, mm-hmm. this opening day is, you guys know that the walkway between the boardwalk and Hollywood Studios, right? Yep. I remember it being cold for some reason and sitting... Under that bridge, which is where Disney security stopped us for the opening, starting at like 1.30 in the morning. Oh. And I remember I I brought snacks. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, I will give you these snacks if you let me join your group up in the front of this line. Mm -hmm. You know, and then basically fed everybody behind me in line to let them let me cut in because I wanted Mm -hmm. to be in the initial group. Yeah, and it worked. I mean, it was, you know, it was I think it was like $700 in snacks that I gave out. (laughs) But whatever, you know, like uh, I was in that initial group, so it was fine, you know? Okay. So anyway, yeah. In these inflated times, what would that be today? 700 uh, at 8%? Yeah, it's year. probably oh, like $1,100. I can't, I can't yeah. count. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can't count that high. Okay. Anyway, Jim Hill, a lot of stuff had to happen before mm-hmm. Hollywood Studios opened Galaxy's Edge, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for that fortune acre addition to happen, that meant the studio lost its Streets of America area. Remember, that was home of the hugely popular Osborne family spectacle of dancing lights, not to mention Lights Motor Action, Extreme Sun Show, and Catastrophe Canyon. Meanwhile, out in California, to allow room for the West Coast version of this, they pared away the end of Tom Sawyer's Island. They shortened the Rivers of America, and we also lost Big Thunder Ranch, right? Right. We, we lost all of those. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can't, you can't make an omelet without eggs. And in that case, Disneyland's always been compared to being a Swiss watch, meaning that it, it, you don't have the luxury of room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you want to build something really big, something else equally big has to come out. Mm-hmm. And that was the case with Galaxy's Edge in Anaheim. Though you mentioned your own story about the Osborne lights and who you got to share uh, the, the bit of Christmas cheer with. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that happens when I was down in Florida for work, mm-hmm. you know, they were filling up the street mm-hmm. on which the Osborne lights were being held. And, you know, I showed up, I, I sat down and I walked around the corner and I looked at the lights overhead and I looked at the lights on the buildings and I looked down the street where there were tables and bar and food. And I got my food and I sat down and, you know, I looked up for my, my plate of uh, spaghetti and there was Jim Carrey and he was sitting right across from me and he said, Hey, you're an Imagineer. How is it? How's your spaghetti? I was going to have that. <laughs> oh, it's good. How's your spaghetti? spaghetti. That's yeah, a good question to lead with. I mean, that's very specific. Yeah, no, he, he was a very charming, very personable man. He was obviously still under contract working with the Disney company on various projects and he loves Disney, loves the parks and we spent the next hour just chit-chatting about all things Disney. But I've got to tell you, I still don't know what he was doing there specifically, nor do I know why I was there. <laughs> Didn't they once have the Ace Ventura character show? Maybe, you know, oh, they, again, yeah. you know, Jim was, was there to bring about the revival of the, the Ace Ventura character show. <laughs> well, that may be, <laughs> the, yeah, that may be true. Um, you know, but again, it was in a good example of, what we're about to talk about in depth, which is the luxury tax, because that street was constantly being used for these private parties and private events. And it was a sacrifice to take that part of the park away Mm -hmm. to build Galaxy's Edge. But when the time came to make the choice between the two, do you want Galaxy's Edge or do you want the Osborne streetlights? Guess what? One. But okay. Now we were uh, mentioned previously the, the Anaheim version 
of Galaxy's Edge. And, you know, one of the things we lost with that was the pony farm, which the Popes held. They operated that on site before there was a Disneyland, right? I think it was the very first yeah. thing to go in. And yeah. so can you talk about what they did for that 14-acre thing to go in? The 10-acre Pope facility, you know, the, the Circle D back there had to go someplace. Well, the Circle D predated Disneyland, as you said. And, you know, in fact, there was a, a street, a public street directly behind what became Small World, which the Disneyland park claimed. And what had been a public street suddenly wasn't anymore. Again, another early example, the luxury tax. But in your case, you were talking specifically about the Pope Farm, the Pony Farm, the Big D. And that was a case where the Pony Farm had been kind of nibbled at for several decades, getting smaller and smaller and smaller, leaving only the corral and the exercise yard and the feed area and the, main, uh, the place for the vets and the horse workers to occupy. Mm-hmm. But finally, it came down to the day where the decision had to be made. If you want Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, it was going to go there. Mm-hmm. And that meant that the ponies had to go away. Mm. They went off-site. They're no longer on the Disneyland property in a formal capacity at all. So today, if you're going to you know, ride a horse, mm-hmm. it's coming by <laughs> horse trailer off-site. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what is it? Norco, California, Riverside County. That The horses commute. It's a 25-mile drive. <laughs> the horses no, no, are no, part no, of the no, rat no. race. Is that what you're saying, Jim? There we go. Yeah, the, the horses are in the rat race. There we go. <laughs> yeah, All right. yeah so. they, they work hard for their money or their oats. But there is, mm-hmm. as, you know, there is a little bit of a break area for horses because even horses need a break area. Mm-hmm. So even though there's no big D, mm-hmm. there is a small yard for when a horse has to leave, you know, take a break, have some oats, smoke a cigar, you know, and then they go and sit. And then, you know, when they get the call back, they go back on stage to, to be harnessed up again, to make the magic. Okay. So Jim Scholl, is the term luxury tax actually something that's used inside Imagineering? Well, actually it's something I think I brought up as a property owner, you know, I know, you know, and I'm sure you guys do as well. You sure. get a property tax yeah. every year. You don't have to, you don't have a choice in the matter. You pay it. Mm-hmm. Or if you buy something, you're going to be paying a sales tax. So I looked around and I was in a couple of projects where they told me, well, if you want to do a project, it's going to cost this. Mm-hmm. But by the way, since you're going to be taking away land that's currently being used for Oh, the boneyard or a junkyard or a trash yard. Yeah. You have to pay the tax, the luxury tax, to replace that in kind somewhere else. So even though it's not part of the project formally, it is part of the project by default. Hence, it's a luxury tax. Okay. So not only do you have to consider the new thing you're building, but if there's something that it replaces that either generates revenue or provides capacity or something like that. You've got to make you got to make good on that as part of your project. Wow. Right, right. And again, a lot of things are are grandfathered. So yeah. let's go back in time and talk about Disney's land's decision to make Mickey's Toontown. Well, part of that land was a trash dump. Sure. And so that dump was very, very old. It was grandfathered. And when you go to move that dump, it has to now conform to the new governmental, environmental laws, oh, okay. rules, and regulations. When, all right. When you say grandfathered, do you mean you mean grandfathered by the city in terms of city re- yes. regulations of trash dumps? Oh, yes. got it, got it, got it. Okay, yeah. Woo. All right. But in this case, when we do go forward with that park land, mm-hmm. uh, you had to build a new trash dump, but now it had to have and conform to the new environmental right. restrictions. Yeah. And that costs that costs money. money. Is that part of and is that part of your project budget? Like, do people know that when you're building, uh, you know, Mickey's Toontown, you ha- you include money to rebuild the trash dump? Absolutely, you can't build Mickey's Toontown without replacing the trash dump. And that's something you don't have to argue with with management to get funding for. You're like, you know, this is the bare minimum it's going to cost to replace this particular facility. You don't have a choice in this. We can't cut this from the budget, right? It's part of the operations of the park, trash removal. But when we talk about luxury tax and and Disney, you know, sometimes it's all about we want to do this, but it's just too dear. It's just too expensive, which kind of brings us to 
that chunk of land behind Main Street USA and, and Tomorrowland at Disneyland, which, Ooh. God, you know, how many projects have been proposed for that over the past 70 years? Oh, yeah, you must be talking about the, the bypass. Mm -hmm. The bypass on Main Street. Yeah, that goes way back. There's a prospectus released by mm -hmm. the company, I think it was dated 57, 1957, so that shows how long ago mm -hmm. there was some thinking about how to address the situation if Main Street USA was completely crowded mm -hmm. in gridlock due to cast crowds or to a parade or some other entertainment event. How do you get people out? Mm -hmm. Well, the solution was to create this bypass alleyway behind Main Street USA mm -hmm. so people could leave from the hub, walk behind Main Street, the Main Street shops, and buildings and restaurants and exit back onto the train near the train area mm -hmm. and then out. That goes way, way back. As I said, 1957 was the first time that was uh, floated to the public. Oh, yeah. Wow. And back then, first it was International Street. And then it seemed like every five years there was something new proposed, but, uh, you know, for their uh, Liberty Street, the Chinatown, Edison Square, which eventually uh, became Carousel. I Apartment. will note. Yeah, Jim Hill, this, the, you know, that we got five different or four different ideas in five years. This hmm. is before the advent of things like Ritalin. <laughs> you, notice, you notice the ideas calmed down after that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it took 30 years to get the next one. Okay, just checking. This Jim Schill mentioned. Early 57, mm -hmm. they're talking about the bypass behind. And this is an idea that continues to bubble up to the point that when the Imagineers are designing Disneyland Paris. I was going to say, we have Jim Shulon. Let's talk about this. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, a good idea never dies. One of the things that's a mantra at WDI is a good idea never dies. And even though the Disneyland Anaheim did not get the bypass, mm -hmm. right. it was, again, an idea that was pulled out of the drawer when the team was creating the designs for Euro Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And again, the reason is logical because you still have a parade on Main Street. Yeah. You still have people crowding onto Main Street to watch the parade. And still there are people who want to exit the park. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? And in that case, they created two arcades, two bypasses, both yep. of which were covered because, again, France gets cold. Yep, in uh, And so you had the Discovery Arcade and you had the Liberty Arcade. And they flank either side of their version of Main Street USA. And they're fantastic. I mean, I've talked to Jim Hill about this before, mm. but they are lovely, lovely additions to the park. And in terms yeah. of, um, you know, traffic bypassing, mm. we kind of did get it in Walt Disney World with those two um, corridors behind uh, either end of Main Street for use during heavy crowd days after the fireworks. So we kind of got it without the covering, but, you know, it's Florida, so the weather's a little bit better. Yeah. And that's not to say that they didn't pursue that unofficially in Anaheim, because mm -hmm. before they came up with their final solution, they, at times, like on uh, New Year's Eve, they would simply, if Main Street was too crowded or gridlock, they'd open up the back of house gates. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, you would exit to go backstage in a place you should not have been, and then you'd walk back behind Starters and Space Mountain, Primeval World, and then again, pop back out onto the park proper near the Main Street train station. And now again, you shouldn't be going and doing that because you're walking by a lot of things that people really don't associate with Disney yeah. or smell like they associate with <laughs> I Disney. I was going to yeah. say, yeah, part of it is like uh, take this bag out to the dumpster on your way to your car. Take that car. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Jim Schull, I mean... In the lead up to Galaxy's Edge opening, didn't Disneyland go through like a whole walkway widening sort of pedestrian consideration effort? Yeah, they did that. Um, and again, sometimes a big project happens as part of a, well, bigger project. Mm -hmm. yeah. And in the case of Galaxy's Edge, when they decided to go down that road, mm -hmm. you know, they did do a lot of walkways. There's a walkway expansion to Frontierland, Adventureland. Uh, let's see, near Hungry Bear Restaurant. It used to be able to dine on the lower floor right on the Rivers of America. They cut that way back to the disappointment of all the hungry ducks who used to be fed uh, palm frites oh. by the guests who were sitting in the dockside. Mm -hmm. But now they had to cut it back because they had to create one of three bridges underneath the train tracks to get back to Galaxy's Edge. That's right. Not to mention the fact that they had to pick up 
what was now the old burning settler's cabin, which was the cabin that caught fire, which almost burned the Eagle Chicks, which became before that the bootlegger's cabin, uh, which became after that. I'm running out of yeah. fingers. But that has also moved. Again, all part of the luxury tax. And Jim Hill, remind me of this, but wasn't the idea in Walt Disney World to eventually make those backstage areas permanently accessible to guests? Like, what, didn't we have like a theater of some kind? Oh, yeah. Planned for like Main Street Theater, right? Yes, you are talking about the Hyperion Theater Project, which back at the mm-hmm. D23 Expo in July of, of 2017, they announced a 2,000-seat theater uh, going to be built backstage, and I want to say it was modeled after the Willis Theater. And mm-hmm. this is something this theme park is needed forever, you know, to, when you think about the Florida weather. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't actually have a large covered theater. No, more to the point, one no. that's, you know, enclosed and air-conditioned. And right. it was announced on July 17th with, with much fanfare, and by February of 2018, the project was off the table. And this is not a case of luxury tax, right? This this is another thing. No, that was not luxury tax. It can be confused with it, but it's not. Because reality is, it did. It was announced. It had artwork. It was going to be happening. And you're right. It was, it, you know, Magic Kingdom certainly could use a full Broadway level thousand seat mm-hmm. theater. But, you know, it was not to be because, again, it was announced to the public and they were going to break ground until they didn't. Mm-hmm. And we still don't know, you know, exactly a reason other than was maybe it, they changed their mind. Was it the case that the real estate is just too valuable? Like the trade-off couldn't happen? The uh, the luxury tax was just too high? Well, let's see. I'll look at here in Google Map. Ooh, there's a lot of people parking their cars back in that spot. So <laughs> maybe not. Uh, maybe another reason is more likely. Yeah, interesting. But interesting. we don't know. I mean, we'll you know again, again, a good idea never dies, mm-hmm. and. That remains a good idea to build a full Broadway-level theater in the Magic Kingdom. So it would never shock me to see it return. Well, that's, uh, that's hopeful then. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All right, one quick thing uh, since we're talking about Hollywood Studios and Galaxy's Edge. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things I think about this development was mm-hmm. that Disney had to go beyond the existing berm of the park but not only that, they didn't. Wasn't there like some water rerouting that had to happen, Jim Hill? Oh yes. In fact, even before they began construction of the Walt Disney World Resort, General Joe Potter, the guy who did Guadalcanal, he had some experience with earth moving equipment under under tough tough deadlines, right? But he <laughs> had to create this forty mile long system of canals because the, the important thing to understand is everybody knows the, the name Reedy Creek but sure. uh, what they don't understand is that the waterways that pass through Walt Disney World are actually part of the headwaters of the Everglades so the water literally has to flow through this it's it's crucial to you know Central Florida's ecology it's crucial to the economy just talk to the the, the sugar growers and so mm. you tell the story Mr. Shul when you you were looking with Bob Weiss and they picked that site at the corner of Buena Vista Drive and World Drive and how, you know, you're kind of boxing yourself in for expansion space. But the, one of the key feeder canals came right through there. And so when it came time to build the studio, I mean, it was just a question of we build around the canal. So the Eiffel Tower was on one side of the canal and like the actual path for the tram tour was on the other well, you're half right because, yes, indeed, the Eiffel Tower was on the, that side of the canal, mm-hmm. partly because you'd be able to see it from World Drive as you walk, drive toward the Magic Kingdom. As you're driving in, you go, ooh, off to the right. I see something that looks like a Mickey hat on a giant water tower. We should go there. But not to mention the fact it's also Cat Canyon. Catastrophe Canyon was also on the other side of the canal. Not to mention some studio production facilities were also on the other side of the canal. So essentially, you had the canal as a demarcation line or de facto berm mm-hmm. for that park when that park opened because they had to manage the waterway. And that canal came in and went the entire length of the back of the park, cutting off future expansion in less someone was ready to pay the tax. The luxury now, tax. Can you talk about what happened 
when Walt Disney Feature Animation Florida decided, okay, no more trailers. We're going to do a, a state-of-the-art facility here, and we're going to do a, a multi-story parking structure with air conditioning for the artists and animators, you know, what that meant to the canal. Yeah, well, feature animation in Florida had a presence from the beginning of the Disney MGM Studios, but that presence was in trailers. The art of animation that guests would go into had a very small area, but it really wasn't given over to the serious animators who were doing movies like, oh, Brother Bear and Mulan and others. They lived in trailers. However, there was a lot of interest in growing that group in Florida, and they couldn't live in trailers forever, and so they decided, hey, let's go build them a multi-story building and because we're going to hire more animators for that multi-story building, they also need a parking garage. Mm. And so they started to pay the luxury tax in installments. And that parking garage and feature animation new building meant that they had to place it on top of the canal, or in this case, in the canal, Oof. which they couldn't do because, yeah. gee, it would sink. So their solution was to then put a, oh, a giant covered concrete canal roof over that entire area. They enclosed a, uh, a canal. They encased the canal <laughs> in that portion. I love because it. again, as we, as we said it. earlier, you can't make that water go away. No, you know? yeah. People down south will write you nasty grams. So that water is not going away. So they put a roof over it and the canal continues to flow in that same channel, but underneath feature animation and that parking garage. You know, one of, the, one of the things that I love about talking about the luxury tax in Star Wars, especially with the canal, is that if you look at the Google map of mm -hmm. the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, mm -hmm. it's on the other side of that canal. And oh. Disney had to build a bridge mm -hmm. to get you over the canal. And I think that's one of the reasons, I mean, there are many reasons why you're in a uh, windowless van going from <laughs> the Star Cruiser to the studios, but I think that's, that's part of it. So you don't see they're going over the canal. And for me, what's fascinating is what started with Feature Animation Florida and that parking garage mm. then just continued with Toy Story Land. And as you mentioned, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and now literally out into the parking lot to where the soon-to-be-closed Galactic Star Cruiser sits. So, uh, that is yeah. entirely true because, again, we talked about the installment mm. plan yeah. to pay for the luxury tax. Well, that first piece of the canal is now covered for Feature Animation. But the second part and the rest of the canal had to be covered when the Disney company decided to move forward with building Toy Story Mania and all of Toy Story Land. And not to mention those 14 acres of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. So that all had to, all had to change. You know, now that I'm looking at the map of Hollywood Studios, you know, there is a little bit of an expansion pad north of Rock and Roller Coaster. But really, if you wanted to expand, you would have to go south past that canal mm -hmm. where to where Star yeah. Wars Galactic Star Cruiser is. And you'd also have to like take out half of the Olaf parking lot or a third of the but you know, you could sort of like rotate that around to take up some of the existing space and still have a really decent chunk of change to expand the park. Like you could probably expand the park by forty percent if you needed to, if you're willing to, you know, Jim Chollin, your point pave over part of that canal or, you know, put a, put a concrete bridge. That's great, Lynn. But the other point I'd make here is that Olaf parking lot wasn't there opening day. Right. If you look at some of the old photos, it was all trees. Yeah. And that are, those trees went away. They moved the road into the old original road to get into the park to build parking lot, which isn't to say, therefore, they couldn't just, if they decided to expand the park once again, to come back in, take that Olaf parking lot away and then offset the parking need with a parking structure. If you look at mm -hmm. those original images of the MGM parking lot, the, the land they moved into was wetlands. Yeah. And one of the reasons Disney bought that giant chunk of property off property, the Walt Disney Wilderness Preserve. Yeah, as an offset. It was literally a swap to the effect of we're, we're mitigating the construction that we're going to do on property. In a weird set of way, you know, the Wilderness Preserve is kind of the ultimate piece of luxury tax. You know, the effect yeah. of we'll buy this giant piece of real estate that will keep pristine like Central Florida was before we got here to allow us to, yeah, pave over a canal with concrete. That's a great point. 
and keep those gators happy. <laughs> Got to have happy gators. Happy gators. Exactly. One last uh, question about the uh, the luxury tax specifically mm-hmm. for uh, for Galaxy's Edge, Jim Scholl. Is it more expensive to repurpose existing land, or is it cheap? Is it more expensive? to build on virgin land, like clearing out trees and stuff like that. Is that something that you guys take into account when you're making these decisions? Well, yes and no. I mean, you do due diligence on virgin land or a greenfield project, but you really don't even know there. In the case of Florida, mm-hmm. you know, you you put a, you dig into the ground and, you know, suddenly you come back the next morning and your back hole has disappeared into a sinkhole. <laughs> so, you know, that's a case of, oh, sh- maybe I shouldn't have dug there. We should move 10 feet to the north. Yeah. So you don't really know sometimes until you start the construction and, you know, you mitigate situations as you find them and you sometimes have to punt. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's something interesting about, you know, talking about the luxury taxes. Even if you are willing to pay the luxury tax, sometimes you don't know until you're done what that exact amount is going to be. True. But I would, I would point out this, that even though you build something in the case of Galaxy's Edge, which is a copy yeah. of what was done in Anaheim, the building codes in Florida are very different from the ones in, in Anaheim. Sure. So therefore, even if you build the same building again, yeah. doesn't mean you have to build it this, or can build it the same way right. again. So so uh, the luxury tax is different depending on location, even within the United States. And sometimes that luxury tax is hidden, but the luxury tax always gets has to be paid. Same as your household property tax. <laughs> Got it. Cool. Thanks very much for the, uh, for the content, Jim Scholl. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Also, we have an email for tech support for Bandcamp. It is support at Bandcamp.com. On next week's show, Disney's Cruise Line is announcing details for its newest ship, the Disney Treasure. It's coming Wednesday, and we're going to follow that up with a look at that and how Disney ended up sending the Disney Wonder to Australia. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me on touringplans.com. Jim Scholl, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me, as always, on the uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, at Jim Scholl. Fantastic. And we're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be showing you the difference between your Cambenzola and your Calo, plus 10 new ways your stinking bishop <laughs> can spice up your relationship at the Maine Cheese Guild's annual Maine Cheese Festival. On Sunday, September 10th, starting at 11 a.m. at Manson Park on Peltoma Avenue in beautiful downtown Pittsfield, Maine. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and radar show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.